Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. For today, we go to Chicago to discuss bacterial superinfection in patients intubated and mechanically ventilated for COVID-19 pneumonia. Hello, I'm Richard Wondering. I'm a professor of medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and the medical director of the medical ICU at Northwestern Memorial Hospital uh, here in Chicago. An absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Richard. Today we'll be discussing your article published in the Blue Journal. Um, it was online in August 2021, and it was entitled Bacterial Superinfection Pneumonia in Patients Mechanically Ventilated for COVID-19 Pneumonia. So maybe we could go ahead and get started on why did you perform the study? Why were you looking at bacterial superinfection in COVID-19? Yeah, so this is uh, a very controversial area. Um, the question for severe viral uh, pneumonias uh, that COVID clearly fits into, but uh, probably uh, influenza has been the, the more common uh, example, is that uh, death is thought to be due to bacterial superinfection in, in a significant proportion of patients. And so there's a general recommendation uh, in the ATS-IDSA guidelines that patients who have severe influenza pneumonia uh, in, by severe, we'd classify our patients who get intubated uh, in the ICU, um, that, that those patients should have empiric antibiotic therapy, either because they've already gotten bacterial pneumonia or that it may actually uh, lead to bacterial pneumonia, which will increase their mortality. So, so that's somewhat of the background uh, behind this study. So what was your um, study objectives? Yeah, so it, it, this was an interesting uh, coalescence of uh, factors here. We, we had been very interested in uh, diagnosis of severe uh, pneumonia. So our standard for any patient who was intubated uh, for community-acquired pneumonia, intubated for hospital-acquired pneumonia, and frankly, for our diagnosis of ventilator-associated pneumonia was, was to do a bronchoalveolar lavage to, to get a more accurate diagnosis. And we'd been validating a multiplex PCR um, that uh, included many community-acquired pneumonia pathogens on, on the panel, uh, as well as uh, many of the pathogens that, that uh, cause ventilator-associated pneumonia. And, we had a previous experience with a uh, MRSA-specific PCR technology that we found was very accurate, had a rapid turnaround time, uh, and it allowed us to uh, avoid use of vancomycin and, and linazolid in patients who had suspected MRSA pneumonia. And so we were uh, planning to extend uh, this study to a, with the multiplex PCR to a severe CAP study, um, not, not just viral pneumonias, uh, but, but even um, suspected bacterial pneumonia, the majority of time we cannot establish a diagnosis uh, uh, of the, the etiology. And so we were, uh, particularly if it was uh, bacterial pneumonia, and so we thought this uh, 
multiplex PCR would allow us to diagnose more strep pneumoniae. There are other uh, streptococcal species, uh, Haemophilus influenza, things that cause community-acquired pneumonia but oftentimes can't be cultured because the patient gets a dose of empiric antibiotics um, in the emergency department uh, uh, in the floor, uh, even prior to uh, this. So we, our, our standard uh, had been getting a bronchoalveolar lavage, and so we actually had uh, validated this multiplex PCR, and we're just starting a uh, randomized controlled trial of use of this uh, multiplex PCR to guide antibiotic therapy versus usual care. Um, and we actually uh, randomized the first patient, and then COVID hit, uh, which uh, changed the whole algorithm in, in, in the plans. Um, so uh, we essentially um, had this uh, technology available, uh, and started using it very uh, rapidly uh, once the COVID pandemic actually hit. So a very opportunistic study, but uh, definitely needed in the context of uh, COVID-19. So yours was a single-sensor observational study. What else do you want our um, listeners to be aware of in terms of your study methods and how they addressed any previous uh, limitations of other studies? Yes, so we our, our standard before this had been uh, a non-bronchoscopic BAL. Uh, so that's one of the, and this was done by respiratory therapists and available 24/7. So we had that that background. Um, we felt this was a significant aerosol generating procedure, and our respiratory therapists were severely stretched during COVID, and so that uh, was probably a somewhat untenable uh, situation. Uh, so we, we modified our bronchoscopic uh, technique. The, there, there was concern that bronchoscopy was an aerosol-generating procedure, but we think that um, that was, in fact, uh, when you do bronchoscopy in a non-intubated patient, that in a patient who's already got an endotracheal tube, with some uh, modifications, uh, it can be done safely without risk to the operator. And we, we actually have published a, a letter that uh, says that is, in fact, true, that we had very few of our uh, clinicians who did the bronchoscopies. Um, uh, none got active uh, COVID, and, and uh, only uh, one got seroconversion, whether it was from uh, the bronchoscopy or from other exposure is, is unclear. So um, we felt we could do this safely. That that was a little bit um, atypical for what uh, initially was thought uh, during the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we did do some modifications, uh, temporarily disconnecting the inspiratory port so that when we introduced the bronchoscope, uh, there, there would not be aerosolization. Um, and we, we did limit it to uh, mainly uh, attendings and fellows. We didn't have our respiratory therapists uh, assisting, and, and there were just the one or two of us in the room to do the bronch so that we minimized the exposure. Uh, and as I say, this, this worked well. Uh, we also had a very low threshold for doing 
BALs. Um, these patients were very confusing to manage, uh, especially early on. Uh, there were times where they would desaturate, and that's one trigger to think maybe they've got a new pneumonia. Um, they often ran fever. They were uh, very inflammatory, so had elevated uh, CRPs. There, there were problems with secretions, especially early when we were uh, uncomfortable with doing some of our usual respiratory therapy treatment. So lots of times there was suspicion of pneumonia, and so we had a fairly low threshold uh, for that. And you know, I think that, uh, but the, the, this idea that uh, we could actually uh, avoid antibiotics or at least use narrow-spectrum antibiotics was probably one of the, the biggest uh, uh, differences from other studies in, in just the accuracy of, of BAL compared to tracheal aspirates or, or empiric therapy. And, and so um, those were some of the major findings of your major methodology uh, changes compared to a lot of the literature. And then in terms of the types of scopes that you use, were you all using disposable bronchoscopes or uh, non-disposable? Yeah, so that's one of the modifications. We'd, we'd already uh, been using disposable bronchoscopes, but that became uh, clearly the standard. So we had no issues with uh, having to um, clean the scopes after doing them uh, with, with unclear uh, protocols on, on how to do that. So um, as I say, that, that was part of our procedure even before, but that clearly was uh, the, the role. And, and places where we did use a diagnostic bronchoscope that, that required cleaning, we, we converted to using the disposable scope. Great. I think you've given us a good overview of your study, Richard. So let's go ahead into your key findings. Um, you processed the, the BAL samples both at initial intubation and when the patients deteriorated. What did you find, and how did they compare to the guidelines for antibiotic therapy? Yep. So I'll, I'll talk about the uh, initial BALs first and then talk about uh, VAP a little bit later. So um, the the primary finding was at the time of intubation, so within 48 hours of getting intubated, the incidence of bacterial superinfection um, by BAL was only 21%. So that's, um, in. it may sound high to some people who were overall COVID, you know, some people were saying it's as low as 5% or so. It's probably taking all comers, including uh, non-intubated patients. So, so it's a little bit higher than some of the uh, information in the literature. On the other hand, you know, most of the studies were suggesting 90% of patients were getting antibiotics. And that was the, as I say, the guideline recommendation, not only the ATS uh, IDSA CAP guidelines, which really were oriented more toward influenza, but COVID-specific guidelines were, were recommending that. And so if people would follow those guidelines, there would be significant over-treatment of uh, the instance of, uh, of bacterial pneumonia based on the prevalence at the time of intubation. So um, the, the, the lower high rate, depending on how you look at it, was one of the first findings. The second was the etiologic spectrum. Uh, so we found mainly uh, cases where uh, it, they were usual community-acquired pneumonia pathogens, 
We actually found more staph than strep pneumo. So the idea that strep pneumo is always the most common cause of uh, community-acquired pneumonia, community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, at least in COVID, uh, was not true. Uh, not only did we um, have the PCR technology and, and culture, um, but we also did uh, urinary antigen testing in a, in a high proportion of these patients and did not find any cases there as well. So, so we feel fairly confident that strep pneumo was not a big player. Uh, that's, that's some interesting uh, information as well and, and kind of challenges the paradigm. Um, but Staph aureus is, is a community-acquired pneumonia pathogen. We do have community-acquired MRSA here in Chicago. Uh, that was not a, a significant problem. We did see a few cases. But we saw lots of other types of strep, uh, occasional um, hemophilus and, and other gram-negative uh, bacteria that, that cause community-acquired pneumonia. Very few atypical pathogens, no atypical pathogens. So no Legionella, which is not real common in, in Chicago, but no Mycoplasma or Chlamydophila or some of the ones that we worry about may require coverage for atypical pathogens. So the third, and I think this is a, a critical piece of information, is the patients who had pneumonia, bacterial superinfection at the time of intubation actually had no excess mortality compared to the ones who did not. Now, this may be unique to COVID. COVID is highly lethal um, viral infection, so it, it may be different than, than influenza, but maybe we've overestimated the role of uh, bacterial superinfection in even in influenza. So it um, doesn't mean that there's no downside to having bacterial superinfection early on. Uh, those patients were had a longer duration of ventilation, were more likely to get uh, VAP and more likely to get a VAP with resistant pathogens. So it kind of put them one step down the line toward multidrug resistant pathogens uh, associated with prolonged um, prolonged ventilation. Now, with in, in, an important caveat about this is our our clinicians were used to basing antibiotic therapy on on results of PCR from that prior uh, MRSA study, and so we were able to either stop or narrow the spectrum of antibiotics uh, for these patients and, and a, a very uh, significant uh, avoidance of broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy, even though some, about a third of the patients who were, um, had those early BALs actually qualified as having hospital-acquired pneumonia, and, and some had been uh, treated with, with antibiotics previously. So at risk for, for drug-resistant pathogens. And um, that ability to stop and narrow antibiotics had important implications for subsequent VAPs, which, which did occur in these patients. But in the first two weeks of ventilation, when the patients did get uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, it was often with the same community-acquired pneumonia pathogens that could be treated with 
narrower spectrum antibiotics. Um, and so ceftriaxone and cefazolin were some of our more common antibiotics for ventilator-associated pneumonia in the first two weeks, um, which is there's this idea of early onset uh, VAP that is um, not associated with multidrug-resistant pathogens that, that we we could see that kind of uh, a pattern. Um, but that's, I think, uh, to a large extent based on the fact that we did uh, discontinue antibiotics in a large proportion of patients and, and narrowed antibiotics in almost all. Now, the, the bad news of our findings there was that we could not distinguish the patients who had bacterial superinfection from the ones who did not by any clinical parameter or even BAL parameters except for the culture and PCR. So no significant difference in fever, um, white count, uh, lymphocyte to neutrophil ratio, CRP levels, procalcitonin levels, they, they all were not distinguishing. It doesn't mean that there aren't some patients that you can put into a very low probability category with no fever, no white count, low, very low procalcitonin. But the, the ones that, that um, we did BALs on were, were uh, indistinguishable. And one of the unique things about COVID-19 is that it was a lymphocytic alveolitis. So the, the lymphocytes were the most uh, dominant uh, cells in the BAL, even in patients who had bacterial superinfection. So that was very confusing. We usually rely on seeing neutrophils uh, in BAL to tell us that, that the patient may have has a higher probability of bacterial pneumonia, and, and that was just not very consistent in these early BALs. Later, when we were diagnosing VAP, the percent neutrophils, uh, once again, became more helpful as the lymphocytic B uh, lavage pattern kind of went away. So, Richard, I want to interject there um, because uh, this highlights uh, some important findings or, or implications. Um, so, you found that you know one fifth of patients have a so-called typical pneumonia at initial intubation. There's no clinical predictors. So, by inference, uh, we should probably be doing bronchoscopies on these patients in order to determine whether or not they need antibiotics. Would that be the conclusion or the, the summation of your findings? So I think that that's, it raises that um, important question. Um, we, we, we don't have comparative uh, endotracheal aspirates at the same time. So some of the pathogens you would expect to be able to detect um, if you get an MRSA or some of these gram-negatives, um, they probably are going to be in, in a tracheal aspirate. But you lose some of the... Um, Quantitation, uh, you you know, all the literature suggests that um, that there are more potential pathogens in tracheal aspirates than there are in a BAL, um, and so uh, you you will likely treat more patients based on with antibiotics based on a tracheal aspirate, um, and um, you. There were other, you know, 
criteria, especially for VAP, uh, especially those early VAPs, that that would make it difficult to um, say whether they're truly infected or not. And so it, I think to minimize antibiotics, the most accurate diagnostic tool um, is, is going to be best. And, and at this point, that's probably BAL. I think our our study just once again illustrates we need better tools to <clears throat> diagnose uh, serious infections like uh, bacterial pneumonia, and, and very few of these patients had positive blood cultures, so that that's really not much of a, a, a benefit there. The, the other issue is all these other strep. Um, they are much harder to diagnose and, and, and be sure of the pathogenicity if they're from a tracheal aspirate. Um, they, they would tend to be dismissed as oral flora, um, and may not even be worked up by the lab. Um, and that's that's one of the, the benefits of the PCR technology is that it actually helped reassure us that the strep viridens that grew on culture was actually a pathogen because it was also in the BAL um, PCR uh, and that there was, you know, an associated inflammatory uh, reaction at the alveolar level. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it was more reassuring whether that has the same value in a tracheal aspirate is unclear. So you, you've opened a big can of worms here that, that has been a debatable issue for, for decades now about uh, BALs versus tracheal aspirates or empirical therapy. I think clearly empirical therapy will lead to over-treatment with antibiotics. Whether you, I think tracheal aspirates will probably be an intermediate that they may um, allow some narrowing uh, of of treatment, um, but less likely to avoid all antibiotics. And then um, maybe you could comment on uh, the role of steroids. So the patients with COVID-19 pneumonia who intubated will receive steroids, and some of them will have received. Um, immune-modulating therapies like uh, uh, the IL-6 inhibitors, what role would that have played in uh, developing these infections? And then yeah. also the influence of uh, ventilators. There were a lot of ventilators that were uh, dispersed throughout the United States. Um, some of those ventilators would not have been initially from the institution. They may have come from another institution. Well, what role would that have played in uh, ventilator-associated pneumonias? Yeah, so um, just to clarify, this this study was uh, mainly from the first surge in, in Chicago, so roughly the same kind of first surge that most uh, uh, places uh, experienced. We, um, it, at that time, were doing studies with an uh, IL-6 uh, receptor antagonist and, and some uh, off-label uh, use. We were not routinely using steroids, so this is uh, a mixture of, of um, it, at least not in a majority of patients. Uh, so, so this is kind of in a pre-steroid, pre-IL-6 uh, receptor antagonist uh, and, and uh, JAK inhibitor kind of milieu. We actually, and this is just anecdotal that we're trying to put some of this together, uh, for 
future analysis, but we think that the VAP rates probably are increased um, after the use of steroids and, and some of these uh, anti-inflammatory uh, agents. Um, even before that, um, we had very high VAP rates. So the, the, this is the converse of the, the kind of the CAP um, early half study is, or, or results is that VAP was much higher than it had been in, in other populations, um, non, non-COVID ventilated patients. And a, a big part of that is the very prolonged duration of, of ventilation with COVID patients. Um, what we found is is a rate of 44% of patients developed at least one episode of VAP, so that's on the high side. If you look at, at a true incidence rate, it's about 45 cases per 1,000 ventilator days. Uh, and that's, that, that's embarrassingly high when you talk about uh, usual kinds of uh, rates of, of VAP. Um, we did somewhat uh, unique to this kind of uh, analysis is because we were using BAL, we were able to distinguish between persistence of one episode of pneumonia versus a superinfection um, or new uh, episode of VAP. And so we could actually include second and third uh, episodes of VAP in our numerator um, which in, in some other epidemiologic studies uh, had a hard time distinguishing, and so they would only look at the instance of first episode of VAP. And there's, that gives a little bit of a, a skewed perspective that there's a plateauing of the incidence of, of VAP. What our data shows is that, that it's just a linear increase over time uh, and that patients continue to be at risk for VAP throughout the, the duration of ventilation. So, Richard, you also uh, focus uh, specifically on bacterial superinfection. Um, there is a recent uh, French study that was published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine that looked at fungal infections in mechanically ventilated patients uh, with COVID-19, and they found um, that 25% of patients had invasive fungal infections, um, and there was concern that the increased death was related to uh, invasive pulmonary aspergillosis and candidemia. Uh, do you have any data on uh, fungal infections for your study, or is that part of another study that you're working on? Yeah, so that's part of uh, ongoing analysis. Uh, we we clearly did see uh, uh, aspergillus um, in in some of our patients. Some very blatant, obvious, uh, unquestionable uh, with. Um, even aspergillus uh, visible in the airways and not a, on a brush. Um, so w- we think it clearly does occur. Um, our sense is that it's probably more common in, in the patients uh, now with, with steroids and, and uh, the other anti-inflammatory agents. Um, we, we have not seen anywhere near the 25%. Um, and frankly, haven't been able. It's a little bit hard to tease out the attributable mortality of, of those. Um, sort of like it is difficult to tease out the attributable mortality of bacterial superinfection, just because 
especially for fungal infections, it's going to be patients who are on steroids, uh, so they're doing significantly worse. And in, in, in nowadays, it, to get on the ventilator after being on steroids means that there's kind of a failure mode. They're already a high-risk population. And so they're going to be the prolonged uh, ventilation. Uh, and, you know, so I, uh, we didn't, we, we don't see it nearly as high an incidence as the French and the Belgians and the Dutch do. And maybe that's uh, environmental issues. Um, we're a big urban center and, and I'm not sure we have as many flowers and potted plants in our apartments as they might um, in Brussels and Amsterdam and in Paris, but uh, uh, I think that there's a, a low. It, it's clearly a risk. Uh, may not be as high as 25%, uh, but I'm, we're hoping to look at this. And, and as I say, the, that's one of the concerns we have about about the um, use of steroids and. and um, the other inflammatory, anti-inflammatory agents is that it, you know, you're you're trading one risk for another, and it's it's always a cost-benefit uh, analysis, and and the cost um, of avoiding intubation and and uh, faster recovery um, might be a greater risk of uh, bacterial and fungal superinfection. And then in terms of the key limitations of your study, this is obviously an observational study, single center. Um, we obviously need uh, much larger uh, studies uh, with uh, multi-center. Um, and as you alluded to, uh, 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 maybe different comparisons. What other limitations do you want the audience to be aware of? And how do you think these limitations could inform uh, future studies that need to be done? Yeah, so I, I think you know our VAP data actually has been uh, confirmed by several other uh, publications, including uh, some uh, multi-center uh, studies using roughly comparable uh, techniques. So, so I think that that data is is pretty strong. Um, the early bacterial pneumonia uh, data still needs to to be. Uh, confirmed a little bit better, but there's also some suggestion that, that our rates are, are roughly comparable to others with that are intubated. So I think, you know, the the, the limitations, we, we didn't get 100% of early BALs. Uh, part of that uh, was a mixture of uh, external transfers. Uh, we had patients who there was fairly early withdrawal of care uh, that those discussions were happening, and it seemed inappropriate to do a BAL, and and some that were just too sick, um, too too hypoxemic to to do. So, in in the patients who did not get an early BAL had an increased mortality. We think that's probably uh, those are the reasons for that. Uh, so there may be an underestimation um, based on the ones that didn't get a BAL. Um, and, and some of these patients also had prior antibiotics. And given the spectrum of uh, pathogens that, that we found in the ones that we uh, did do uh, uh, early BAL on, we, we may have missed some of these easy-to-treat pathogens. So, so the, the instance may be slightly higher than, than our 
percent PCR gave us a few additional um, pathogens, and, and um, but but not as many as we were somewhat anticipating. And, and you know, the the PCR actually just helped us uh, feel more comfortable with with the diagnosis, and it gave us the diagnosis early. We we could have a a excellent lab that had great turnaround time, um, and we were able to get our results roughly uh, two to three hours after doing a BAL, and could make very quick and rapid uh, antibiotic changes. Now that logistic issue is probably one of the main limitations that of, of extending our study to other centers um, because. This is, as I say, we were gearing up for this just before COVID hit, and so we had things in place that that allowed us to to uh, overcome some of these logistical hurdles that that are still going to be a, a challenge to other centers. Um, in, in as I've mentioned, this is kind of in the pre-steroid inconsistent uh, anti-IL six, and when anti-IL-6 was given, it was without steroids, and I think that those probably have to go together, so that's another limitation of the study, and, and the whole picture may be very different um, with the current management uh, strategies. Yeah, I think you uh, highlighted really important limitations, and we look forward to how other studies address those. Um, Richard, how do your findings advance our care of patients with severe COVID pneumonia? Based on what you found, uh, what would you suggest uh, clinicians be aware of? Obviously, your study is observational, so there's no causality. Uh, there won't be any strong recommendations, but based on what you see in the study, what would you want clinicians to be cognizant of when treating patients with COVID-19? Yes, so I think that the first uh, point is that bacterial superinfection is is not as common as many would suspect, and that it uh, that you know it it is um, a not, not as serious of an issue as we initially thought pre-pandemic. Now that may have implications for influenza as well. When whenever we get influenza back, it will be very interesting to see um, if the same. Uh, relationship holds that uh, my my bias is I think influenza can be sufficient uh, in itself to cause acute respiratory failure and and even death even without bacterial superinfection so we'll see what what we can find with that I I think as I say it, it just illustrates again the importance of getting better and more accurate diagnostic tools for bacterial pneumonia it's uh you know, we have chosen to do BALs. It, I think there's just got to be a recognition that tracheal aspirates or empirical therapy, the price you're paying for the, the cost-benefit ratio there um, is is that you're going to use excess antibiotics and st- start down that pathway selecting for multidrug-resistant pathogens. I think our study also raises some concerns about what's reported in the literature from some of these um, large pragmatic trials. The, the incidence of pneumonia uh, as a complication of steroids, of 
um, anti-IL-6 therapy, I think is grossly underreported. Um, in in all the studies that that focus on the diagnosis of pneumonia, it's, it's way higher than is reported in those studies. And so, the question is, in, in our our study raises the issue that pneumonia is being masked, that it's difficult to to um, diagnose uh, clinically. In, and I suspect, and in, in there isn't a lot of literature or a lot of data in these studies about the actual use of antibiotics in it. So I suspect that um, there's, there's probably a, a very uh, high use of antibiotics with, with broad spectrum there. And, and I think that you know our study had a relatively low mortality for for COVID uh, overall um, at a time when when other centers were, were reporting much higher levels. Um, and, and so I think it's safe to have a, a, a narrow um, antibiotic uh, therapy uh, approach. I think that's a, another important finding is that it, it's actually safe and maybe better to avoid antibiotics. And, and I think that's consistent with prior literature. Um, as well, it's just we need the tools to be able to to make that accurate diagnosis. And then, in terms of um, centers who don't have your capabilities, those who aren't able to do um, targeted lavages, those who don't have multiplex PCR, what would you recommend for them? Yeah, so I I think it, it you have to um, optimize clinical. Uh, suspicion. So, like I say, I, I, I think if you've got a afebrile patient who um, has a low procalcitonin, a low CRP, um, odds are the patient doesn't have antibiotics, or I'm sorry, doesn't have uh, a bacterial pneumonia. And so, I think our study would say it's safe to not treat them with antibiotics. That that we shouldn't. Um, give everybody empirical antibiotics and that it probably doesn't really prevent um, the the subsequent bacterial pneumonia. Um, what it does is it just makes that subsequent bacterial pneumonia a more drug-resistant uh, one. So, so I think that that's probably the most practical uh, issue is to, to, to say it's, it's actually safe to not treat very low probability cases. Um, Unfortunately, that's that's the minority of COVID patients early on. Um, I think uh, use of tracheal aspirates, uh, you know, they're they're actually somewhat of an aerosol generating procedure just to to get depending on on what kind of technique um, you use. But um, but you know, once again, if if they're negative, it pro- probably is. Uh, you don't have pseudomonas, you don't have staph aureus, um, at least uh, less likely. And so, once again, avoiding antibiotics uh, is is an appropriate and, and probably safe uh, approach. Yeah. And then, uh, Richard, um, you've been very generous with your time, and we appreciate you taking the time to share um, your thoughts on your paper published in the Blue Journal entitled Bacterial superinfection, pneumonia in patients mechanically ventilated for 
COVID-19 pneumonia. Um, I just want to leave you with the opportunity to speak to our audience one last time um, with any concluding remarks. So I think uh, th this is uh, was a very important study and, and helped us tremendously. I, I hope it uh, helps uh, listeners uh, to understand that uh, it, it, bacterial pneumonia is a serious issue, but it's probably not as prevalent uh, as we initially thought. And, and uh, once again, a plea for better diagnostics. Thank you very much. Uh, you take care. All right. Thank you. A big thank you to Dr. Wondrunk, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.